we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. And if you value what we do, folks, we could sure use your support. You can visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit doing good work, only good work, uh, then you can also consider becoming a sponsor. That would be great. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Check out Gateway's catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, later in the program on our farm and food segment, we're going to be talking about root crops. That sounds like a, that sounds like a like a, an excitement killer. It's not. It's a good one. We'll also be talking with Dr. Charles Goldman about the uh, Supreme Court decision on uh, coal and how that might risk decimating other climate action initiatives. We'll also talk about transgender women in sports. Uh, first, it is my delight to welcome uh, Bill McKibben to the program. Uh, Bill is a noted author, uh, one of America's leading climate activists, and he joins us, I believe, on the phone from Vermont. Hello, Bill. Ed, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Greetings from the Green Mountains, where it's a <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful, cool summer day. Yes, and where I went to went to college for two years. I know it's just a beautiful place year round. Hey, so I, I do want to give a nod to your uh, two of your earlier books that I recently read, Oil and Honey and Radio Free Vermont. But let's start by looking at your just released book, with a great title, by the way, "The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon." Uh, from your from the promotional material I read about this uh, your, your book, it's um. I mean, I'll just quote this. It says, McKibben grew up believing, knowing that the United States was the greatest country on earth. As a teenager, he cheerfully led American Revolution tours in Lexington, Massachusetts. He sang Kumbaya at church, and with the remarkable rise of suburbia, he assumed that all Americans would share in the wealth. But 50 years later, he finds himself in an increasingly doubtful nation, strained by bleak racial and economic inequality on a planet whose future is in peril. And he is curious, what the hell happened? Bill, welcome to the program, and what the heck happened? <laughs> well, I guess above all what happened, I mean, the, the book really is as close to a memoir as I'm ever going to write, but it's really only about a, a decade of my life, my adolescence living in the suburbs outside Boston, Lexington, Massachusetts, the birthplace of American liberty. And I think in that decade, we went from the point at which we were still trying to make America a better, more cohesive, uh, beloved community, to use Dr. King's phrase, um, uh, the, where the sort of solidarity that had gotten us through the Depression and the war uh, 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 faded and was replaced by the end of the decade uh, in the most, I think, important election of my lifetime by Ronald Reagan's election and the ascension of the idea that we weren't really a society at all. We were a collection of individuals best governed by market forces, and that if uh, we just got out of the way, those forces would um, make everything great. Uh, that's the political philosophy we've more or less lived under for most of my life, and what it's given us is cartoonish levels of inequality uh, and a planet whose temperature is rising with yeah. extreme and frightening rapidity and, uh, and and so time to time to change again <laughs> and, and you and i grew up uh we, we have a lot of i mean i i joke with people that you and i might be uh brothers separated at birth because uh, you and i <laughs> you and i have a lot more in common than i do with any of my blood relatives um <laughs> uh, we grew up in the same area about the same time and i remember ronald reagan and i remember being disturbed uh, it just seemed like a radically different direction than what i had witnessed in my younger years but what do you think, what, what, and I remember one of, one of Reagan's sayings that I remember very, very strongly was, um, you know, uh, we, we, we need a bigger pie, you know, or are you better off than you were four years ago? That was the, are you, not, not the country, not the world, yeah. are you better off than you were four years ago? What, what, um, what allowed that, that, um, that new perspective to dominate and prevail and continue? Well, I think one thing that happened, if the 1970s was a crucial decade, one thing that happened then was we really started to get wealthy, at least in the suburbs. The rapid, rapid rise of property values uh, turned people into, uh, uh, really began the kind of 
rapid, rapid ascent of American mass prosperity. And that turned people more and more conservative. They had more to protect. By decade's end, we were passing Proposition 13 in California, the tax revolt. Uh, the other thing that happened was, the, and, and it's echoed by what's going on around us now, uh, the two oil shocks that uh, really began to signal that we were going to have to change some of our ways of doing business, uh, or at least that was how people like Jimmy Carter interpreted them. What Ronald Reagan said was, no, we don't have to change. We right. can just go find some more places to drill, and it'll be morning in America again. Yeah. And true, for a little while that seemed to work. And he, he not that's only, precisely the thing that's gotten us yeah. you know, on a planet with a melting Arctic. And he, but, you know, Reagan not only said that, but he, he, uh, <laughs> he took down the solar panels that Jimmy Carter had put on the White House. Yeah, it's actually really amazing to go back and read about Carter. In his last budget as president, he had decided that the U.S. should put itself in a position to be getting 20% of its power from solar energy by the year 2000, hmm. i.e. 20 years from, from then. Had we done that, had we carried out that project, which, remember, he was announcing before we knew about climate change, uh, we would be in an infinitely different and better position to deal with the existential challenges we now face, the ones that are drying out the Midwest, setting California on fire, uh, you know, on and on. Instead, Ronald Reagan, as you say, climbed up on the roof and took down the solar panels that Jimmy Carter had put up there. And, and that, for decades, was the end of the yeah. American experiment with renewable energy. Now we're behind the eight ball and scrambling somehow to yeah. catch up. Well, let, let me look at each of the three elements of the title of your book, Flag, Cross, Station Wagon. Um, how, maybe just start with the flag. Give us an idea of how that theme, that symbol, plays into the overall uh, direction the book is taking us. Well, I grew up, as I say, in Lexington, which was a historic town. And, and as you pointed out, I even gave tours of the battle green in my tricorn hat. So I had a real allegiance to that story of the brave Minutemen standing up really for the first time to colonialism and imperialism and, and striking a real blow for human freedom. But, of course, the story turns out to be more complicated. Uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is uh, uh, draws from something that Paul Revere wrote in his journal, uh, or in his account of his famous ride to Lexington. Uh, this was, he was writing 20 years later, and he said, uh, you know, I was, the British were chasing me back and forth on horses, and I was, you know, uh, making a uh, big galloping away, and I, this all happened right under the place where Mark hung in chains. That was just the only reference to it. It took a little while, I had to go figure out what it meant. There wasn't much history about hmm. it. But it turns out that 20 years before the revolution, uh, a slave in Boston had murdered his particularly cruel master. Mm -hmm. And instead of being charged with murder, he was charged with treason. And after he'd been drawn and quartered, his body was hung in an iron cage, a gibbet, where it stayed for at least 40 years above Charlestown Common wow. as a way, I guess, to remind people not to be insubordinate. That puts a slightly different spin on sure all does. the kind of Sons of Liberty and the Noble Minutemen and so on. It doesn't, it doesn't completely change the meaning of it, but it's a part of our history that we have mm. to grapple with because it runs right up to the present, including places like Lexington, which remain almost completely absent from, of, of African Americans in their population. And, and that's a reason that that wealth gap between black people and white people in America has grown, not shrunk, since 1970. And that sounds like a segue to the station wagon reference in the title of your book. <laughs> Just guessing. Yeah. I haven't read the book yet. Yes. I mean, the, you know, the station wagon, at least in my day, was the kind of emblem of American mass prosperity. Everybody had one. Um, and... And we took it for granted. I mean, the suburb was a kind of embodiment of the automobile designed mm -hmm. even, you know, right down to its turning radius in right. its design. But uh, that also produced the single largest puff of carbon dioxide in the planet's history. Uh, you know, by 1970, America was using a third of the world's oil. 
even the industrialization of China didn't put as much carbon dioxide in the air as the suburbanization of the United States. Mm. Yeah, the suburbanization continues. I mean, and here in Iowa, it's yes. it's, it's just off the charts. All all you, you I mean, Des Moines used to be a fairly compact city. Now it's just spreading out everywhere. They don't get well, it. and we've gone from station wagons seem benign and innocent <laughs> now that everybody drives semi-military vehicles everywhere they go. Right. Um, so, uh, yes, you're absolutely right that it continues. And even if we take steps now to, you know, buy electric vehicles or whatever it is we might do, that very large carbon debt isn't going to go away. It's one of the reasons, just as with our kind of uh, uh, the debt that we owe African-Americans, there's a huge debt owed to the rest of the planet, too. Mm, yeah. And one that happily we have you know, we're rich enough that we can actually, if we want to, start paying some of these debts. Big question there, if we want to. So, yeah, let, yes. me, let me bring in the third uh, symbol from the title of your book, The Cross. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in what was the very standard uh, 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 Christian religiosity of that period, uh, the mainline Protestant denomination, 52% of Americans in 1970 counted themselves as Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, uh, uh, Congregationalists. This was That's what religion meant, by and large, in America. Well, that 52% is down to 15% now. Mm. And those churches, whatever their flaws, and there were many, were engaged in that same project of trying to build a better society. They've been replaced by an evangelical Christianity, which is much more concerned with a kind of transactional relationship between individual humans and their particular God, uh, a, a kind of business of salva personal salvation. In many ways, it mimics what we did in political life uh, when we stopped caring about our society as a whole and started caring about ourselves. So, Bill, I, I mean, I, I want to kind of talk about the way out of our predicament, if there is one. But, but I, know I want to start by referencing another one of your books that I really enjoyed, uh, being a radio guy, um, Radio Free Vermont. Uh, del <laughs> delightful. I mean, I guess that's your only novel. Yes. Uh, and a delightful one. Um, but basically, the, the premise is that, um, and I would think this is a premise that might appeal to have cross-political appeal across the political spectrum, it, you know, basically that um, Vermonters decide they've had enough with the corporatization of their universe uh, and the, the uh, chains dominating the landscape and basically find a way to um, at least move toward creating an independent state. <laughs> Again, a novel. <laughs> yes, but, uh, a fable almost. Yeah, <laughs> but is, is, there, is there any germ of truth in that, uh, in that dialogue that, 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 that might be in part a cure for the current dilemma we find ourselves in? Well, there's certainly uh, an understanding that our government uh, has gotten dysfunctional. And, and that's, I think, for several reasons. One, look, our country is so large that it's very hard to govern, especially with the archaic institutions that we have, you know, uh, that we're left with. I mean, right. Vermont, which has 600,000 people, has as many senators as California, which has 40 million. Wow. Um, it's even harder to govern now that we've let corporations game the political system in any way they want, things like mm -hmm. Citizens United. They're very good at it, the corporations. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. They, they, believe me, having spent 30 years trying to get people to take the science of climate change seriously, uh, there's, these guys are wizards. Um, evil wizards, but wizards nonetheless. <laughs> um, so one understands why there's lots of people who like to think about uh, smaller societies that can be governed actually by the people who live in them. Of course, at the same time, we have the tremendous irony that the biggest problem we face, uh, climate change, really can only be dealt with at very large levels. Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't call it global warming for nothing. <laughs> so how do you, uh, I mean, looking at, uh, I, I, you, you talk about President um, uh, Obama in your book, and point out very accurately, I believe, that he made these great promises on climate and then delivered a lot of real good stuff for the oil industry. How is Joe, how is President Biden doing on climate? I mean, let's not compare him with 
President Trump, and maybe compare with President Biden, but also compare with scientific reality? Well, that's the problem. I mean, the the bar is always, in this case, set not by how am I doing compared with anyone else, it's how am I doing compared with physics? (laughs) And uh, the answer, of course, is not very well. Biden, I think, came in with good intention um, and, and hired a lot of good people to be doing this work. But with his bare majority of 50 senators, mm. uh, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Joe Manchin has taken more money from the fossil right. fuel industry than anybody else in D.C. It's not an easy contest to win, but he won it. <laughs> and their return on investment has been staggering, yeah. you know, a couple of million in campaign donations. And he's held up the entire climate plan in that right. Build Back Better bill. Uh, so, and not only has, you know, has Manchin so far failed to come across with anything uh, legislatively, I fear that the Biden administration has pulled most of their punches in terms of mm-hmm. executive orders and stuff mm-hmm. for fear of offending him. Well, and also, uh, I so mean, they've really been between a rock and a hard place. Here. And maybe also a fear of just bumping into the uh, Supreme Court, which seems to be grim and determined to uh, repeal so much of what uh, has been accomplished, not just on climate, but on, on civil rights, human rights as well. I mean, I'm looking well, at the... I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, you are you have your finger on the pulse, but here's what I would say, and the thing that I, I hope that Biden's paying attention to now. Those big Supreme Court decisions that we've just lived through were not only horrifying, they also were, and this is politically important, extremely unpopular. On guns, on abortion, and on climate change, majorities of something like 70-30 or better want real, want the exact opposite of what the Supreme Court did. And so if any president ever had a chance to come out fighting right yeah. now and lead us in a new way, I mean, this is it. And God, one hopes that he seizes it or someone does. And why has, why has, not, why has President Biden not taken that kind of an initiative? Well, I think that all his instincts from the past are conciliatory. Uh, I think he remember came of age quite a while ago back <laughs> back in the period I'm describing in this book or right. even before when bipartisanship was not the you know absurd mirage that it is at the moment and and I don't think he's successfully updated his instincts to tell you the truth yeah. but uh, you know hope springs eternal in the meantime the rest of us can go to work now you know I've been starting this last year, this thing that's really taken off, we call it Third Act, which is progressive organizing for people over the age of 60. And we're determined to help build this backlash over the next months uh, uh, and and try and, you know, salvage what we can out of the midterm elections, take on the big banks that are bankrolling the fossil fuel industry, mm-hmm. do the kind of work that we really must be doing now before it's too late. Folks, we've been talking with uh, Bill McKibben, uh, author and a leading climate activist, about his new book, The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon. Um, Bill, I imagine you may be going on tour. This book is just out. Are you touring around uh, talking about the book? Indeed. I've been all over the place talking about it, and it's been great fun um, because there's a lot of people who share this set of memories. You know, Mm. if you grew up in your 60s, if you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s now, it means that you grew up in your first act in this kind of hopeful country, right. not a place immune from problems. We had assassinations. We were in the middle of a war, but we seem to be headed in the right direction. You know, we passed the Civil Rights Act, the Gun Control Act, the Clean Air Act. We had the first Earth Day, the Voting Rights Act, on and on and on. Uh, and there's lots of people now just scratching their head mm. and saying, as I say in the subtitle of the book, what the hell happened? Um, and and eager for explanation and yeah. eager to do something about it. Well, I am. Uh, I will be reading that book soon, and I'm sure I'll have the answer by the time I get to the end of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So, if people want to get more information about your book or keep keep it, keep posted on you know your, your possible visiting and speaking in their area, where do they go? What's the best way to do that? Well, BillMcKibben.com. But also thirdact.org if you're not 60 yet. Tell your parents and your grandparents. Okay. Very good. Folks, we've been talking with Bill McKibben. Bill, thanks again for joining us. 
What a pleasure. Thank you always for all your good work, Ed. Thanks. Hey, folks, this is Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break. And when we come back, Charles Goldman joins me as we tackle two topics, the Supreme Court's decision on coal-burning plants and also transgender women in sports. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of our media, the niche we're trying to provide here is more important than ever. So, you know, please support what we do. Go to the Fallon Forum website. Uh, you can sign up for our weekly newsletters. You can donate. You can become a monthly sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in both English and Spanish. And the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. And on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. All right, with me now, Dr. Charles Goldman. Hey, Charles, how you doing? Uh, pretty good, Ed. How's it going? Good, 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 good. Hey, so, um, you know, I just, just got done talking with uh, Bill McKibben about various and sundry, of course, but um, one issue that came up was the the Supreme Court ruling on coal-fired power plants. Uh, we didn't talk too much about that, but, you know, that's getting a lot of attention, not just because of what it does to uh, the clean power plan, uh, but what it might say about other environmental and climate-related initiatives. Yeah, let, let, let's uh, consider for a minute that this case was pulled by the Supreme Court for a decision, even though by any standard it should have been declared moot. Number one. Which case are we talking the about? Obama, the Obama, the oh, West Virginia okay, case. Okay, the right. Obama power plan that was West Virginia was, you know, among other states, suing against never was brought into being. The Trump uh, administration rewrote it, and that never got brought into being. And the Biden administration had shown no interest in formulating a new one. So in, in point of fact, they were deciding something about something that already had been decided by the marketplace, because actually the targets in the Obama power plan had already been met because of market forces that made, you know, that made coal more too expensive. expensive. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah. So it, it, this is just another gambit on the part of this Supreme Court to make a decision about something that nobody was asking them to make a decision about. But, but, they, but, but even still it has an impact. It's going to affect. Well, the impact is this. Okay, yes. The impact is this. They, they picked this case because they wanted to further solidify this, this fiction that they made up in 2014 of the major questions doctrine. Now, of course, for those of you who may be looking for the major questions doctrine in the Constitution no, or the yeah. Federalist Papers, you're not going to find it. It ain't there. It ain't there. <laughs> right, because they, this, the major questions doctrine, according to the, the six conservative justices, or at the time five conservative justices, is that when you are making a, a uh, change in regulatory um, you know, practice that is going to affect major parts of our economy or our political structure, that that needs to go back to Congress, for Congress to specifically 
um, make these regulations up, which, of course, will never happen because Congress can't even do anything at this point, you know, of any note except for meaningless resolutions for the most part, yeah. you know, and watered-down gun safety laws. So essentially, this was an opportunity for them to pretty much say that anything that they decide is going to be a major question. Because remember, it's not even clear from the decision why this is a major question. They kind of semi-define it, but it's defined in such a way that it could apply to any regulatory decision at this point. And they are going to be the arbiters right. of well, what the major question is. Well, and if I mean, it all get kind of. It doesn't at all kind of wrap back into what the founding fathers de- determined was uh, was the appropriate scope of uh, of government. Uh, no, not at all. Well, I mean, is doesn't at all. There's nothing in the Constitution. Well, no, but, they, but, they, but they, don't they try to tie it back to the fact that, well, you know, these things weren't addressed previously. Or in this case, it's kind of an extension of these things. You know, the climate, for example, uh, climate pollution, carbon dioxide was not addressed, has not been addressed by Congress. No, 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 no. No, they, they, in fact, did not say that. What they all said right. was that the consequence of regulation, when the consequence of regulation is going to cause major changes, whatever those may be, then the Congress has to either change the law to say that the EPA can do this, or the Congress itself has to formulate the regulations. It, it was not specific to CO2 whatsoever. They were trying to make a much bigger point, because they want to do this for everything. This is, this is the culmination of 30 years on the part of the right wing who are even more subservient, if it's possible, to the wealthy oligarchs in this country than the Democratic Party is. Um, <laughs> yes, it is possible. Them, right. To give them a return to the pre-New you know, New Deal era of essentially no regulation, where industry can do whatever it wants. Yeah. It you is. Know, and so this, this is, is not really a decision about CO2. This is a decision about the regulatory state, and there's been multiple decisions they have made along the way right. that haven't gotten yeah. the play that this one that are exactly the same. It's, now, a, it's a stab. It's a stab at the administration, at the at the administrative branch, the, the executive branch. Right. I mean, this is this is just what is it, Steve Bannon who said he wants to make the government so small you can drown it in a bathtub. That was that was Newt Gingrich, wasn't it? Was that Newt Gingrich? Yeah, I think so. Newt Gingrich, it's way back. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and and so this is this is. I mean, the Republicans have been telling you all along what they want. Yeah, they're honest. They're honest, right? I mean, the biggest impediment to getting what they want is the regulatory agencies, and okay. that's why, um, you know, we live in a time in which science is ignored, and you know, uh, stupidity and and superstition are celebrated, um, and so it, this is a time that's ripe for the the undermining of. Um, you know, regulations that, you know, I I guess the question is this. Do you think they would have ever put seatbelts in cars if it weren't for the the fact they were forced to by the government? Probably not. No. Thank you, Ralph Nader. And they didn't want to do airbags either because it would cost them money to have to retool their, um, you know, their assembly lines. But, you know, you're also going to see it in things that are maybe, I don't want to say a little close to the home, but, for instance, they made a decision earlier this year in which a, um, you know, uh, a large hedge fund manager had basically scammed over a billion dollars um, from his clients. And, um, and he was fined a million dollars by the SEC for defrauding his clients. And he brought a case, this manager's name is George Jarkesi, he brought a case to the Supreme Court in which um, he argued that that action unconstitutionally deprived him of his right to a jury trial. And, of course, where did he bring it to? He brought it to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's the one that they bring all these cases to because, you know, what, what they want to rule on that's super conservative is they first to have the case brought to a district judge in Texas. Then it goes to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is super conservative, and then it goes directly to the Supreme Court. So basically, they, he, they brought this case. Yeah, so and just bypass logic and reason. Yeah. Okay. So hey, um, so again, the case the case we've been talking about, the uh, West Virginia versus the EPA, uh, the case the Supreme Court just ruled on relevant to the coal fire, the coal fired power plants, and President Obama's clean power plan. Uh, that's caused people to look much more broadly at other 
uh, climate and environmental related rules uh, or, or proposals even. And in the case of the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, you know, they've got this draft proposal that would require companies to provide their investors with, um, with, with certain details, information about um, what, what, you know, what, what their investments would be doing relevant to climate change and the risks that, risk that, risk involved in that. And now there's a lot of thought that, well, this, you know, SCOTUS is, is setting, us, uh, setting itself up to, um, to rule against uh, that um, proposal as well. How, what would you, do you think they'll, do you think they'll go that far? I mean, it's entirely possible. I mean, um, that one is, they may leave that one alone because I'm not sure what detriment and what the major question is. Because part of any prospectus is supposed to be that um, you have to give the potential investors a true and honest depiction of what are the risks of this investment. I think they'd be hard-pressed to argue that climate change is not a risk to certain investments. Um, so I think something like that would probably stick. Things that won't stick are going to be anything that, you know, gets in the way of, uh, in, you know, forcing companies to do things that would mitigate their, uh, you know, environmental risk that might increase the, or decrease their profitability, um, anything that would actually protect consumers from being, you know, scammed, I'm sure well, somehow they'll get rid of. Um, I mean, this is where we're going. Yeah, well, I mean, but I'm yeah, sure, I'm sure, I'm sure the oil companies would love to get rid of that SEC SEC proposal. And again, Madison, Madison, I found this quote from Madison Condon. She's an associate law professor at Boston University, and she focuses on climate change and the intersection with that and uh, market risk and regulations. And she says, uh, "quote I think the Supreme Court is going to kill the SEC rule." I think they could do it in many ways, and it may or may not be the major question doctrine. Would you disagree with that? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I can't disagree, you know, beyond the major questions doctrine. Um, but my big question to you is, kind of, so what? Nobody reads those things anyway. I mean, people, people. I mean, as much as I'd like, you know, I'd like to say that people go in and investing. You know, open with you know an open mind and actually look at all the risks. You know, have you ever read through one of those prospectuses? Heck no. <laughs> no, I mean it's 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 just a lingo that well, that yeah, but but even but for people, highly educated people can't figure well, out. Well, yeah, but it's but you know most of the, most of the bad stuff that happens in the world happens in the quiet of back rooms. You know, in, in the fine print. That's where that's where you really uh, run into the uh, changes. Or the uh, you know, or the the roadblocks that that make real progress impossible. Well, it doesn't. It, even if they don't include it in the prospectus, it doesn't preclude people going to court and claiming that they knew full well about it, and they you know they didn't reveal it based on just standard SEC regulations that are in place. So I don't know. I I can't get too excited about that. I'm much more concerned about how they're going to really undermine. You know, all, all of these things or many of these things that are regulations are consumer and worker protections. And I don't know why the Democrats can't get that across to people. Because they've that, also been taking too much money from those interests that don't want to see those things change? Probably to a great degree that's true. But, I mean, you know, people, people need to, to, you know, take a class. Someone needs to educate people what the United States looked like in, 1920, in the 1920s. And ask the question, is that what you really want to go back to? You know, no child labor laws, no issues, no overtime pay, uh, no significant, you know, protections against exposures at your work. I think the way things are I going, mean, Charles, I think the way things are going, people would be happy to only go back as far as the 1930s. I mean, I think people are, <laughs> They will yeah. be true. <laughs> it, you know, it, it does highlight, though, that for all of, of the social and cultural issues that are coming out of the decisions of the Supreme Court, that's all, that's all to keep you distracted. The real work of the Supreme Court is these kinds of decisions, not necessarily the West Virginia one. I mean, that one is out front. But these small decisions in the background about taking down regulation one by one, you know, in different, different ways, and literally – the hypocrisy of this court is unfathomable. Yeah. They're well, arguing that abortion should be overturned because of the ambiguity 
of the um, Roe versus Wade decision, as well as the whole issue as to whether the 14th Amendment does, you know, come up with an un unenumerated right to privacy. But they literally are making up. I mean, the major question is doctrine is a complete and total fiction. It's the same fiction that the Second Amendment was talking about, a personal right yeah. to bear arms. Well, and it'll be, apply, it'll be, it'll be applied when their corporate overlords see, a pro, see it as an well, appropriate response. Well, that's right. Uh, and and, and that's, that's their, this is their real goal. Yeah. I mean, they're keeping everybody worked up about these push, you know, these hot-button issues, which we've had for many years, but in particular, the abortion decision. And yeah. while all this is going on, I mean... To me, the biggest case of next year is going to be this North Carolina election case. Yeah. Well, Charles, you know, um, and we can talk about that, at, you know, yeah. a, a, another show as we get closer to when they're going to hear this case in October. But this is truly scary. Charles, I got to run to a break. Um, when we come back, uh, uh, let's talk about something a little bit uh, easier, like uh, transgender women in sports. Oh, yeah, that's a lot easier. Okay. <laughs> Folks, this is Ed Fallon, uh, Charles Goldman with me. Uh, back in a minute with more conversation on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, you can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet. And the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, Charles Goldman's with me, folks, and uh, we're going to switch gears here and talk about something really easy and non-controversial, transgender women in sports. Charles, we're having this conversation because you asked for it. <laughs> right. No, I did. I did. Because I think, I think this, this is the kind of, of issue which highlights how we are unable to deal with any difficult questions anymore in this country um, because of the um, extremism on both sides of the spectrum on an issue like this. I mean, this is a question that begs for a solution. And instead, what are we kind of, what, what are we, you know, presented with? We're presented with a, a multitude of red states that are, you know, including ours, that are out there banning transgender uh, women's involvement in um, girl sports. Um, and on the other side, we're having, we're having the invention of those who don't agree that there should be a completely open involvement of transgender uh, women in women's sports. We have the new invention of the TERF, the trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Okay, so this I, is the I, I've, not, I've, not, I've not heard of this acronym. Say it again. No, this is, I, 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 I just came across this a couple of weeks ago. Right. So basically, you know, let's look at the question. What, what, the question is, do transgender women have an advantage over their cisgender women um, in, in sports? 
And this kind of coalesced around a swimmer for the, I think, the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, right. swim yep. team by the name of Leah Thompson, yes. a transgender woman. And immediately, everyone took sides. First of all, of course, the right didn't want to deal with the issue at all. They simply wanted to ban it because it's a culture issue for them and because they're obviously making, uh, you know, transgender women as, long as, as well as LGBTQ plus um, people part of their, you know, of their culture war and because it's better to be against them than it is to be seen as a racist. So this is okay <laughs> in their mind. But on the other side, we have a situation where literally, you know who was called the turf by um, some of the, you know, the people who feel like they're again that transgender women should be able to just compete with women in women's sports. And again, turf stands for what? Trans exclusionary radical feminist. So Trans exclusionary radical feminist. The turf feminist. term was first, I believe, used because Martina Navratilova. You remember her? Oh yeah. You know, retired tennis star, mm -hmm. lesbian you know, out lesbian, liberal, she had the audacity to say that she did not believe that should be done. You know who also said that should be not be done? Renee Richards. When you say you Renee you, Richards? You say it would not be done, yeah. you mean that, that trans women should not be allowed to participate? Should not be competing against women. Okay. Right. Um, Renee Richards, you remember? Mm -hmm. she, she was the ophthalmologist who um, transitioned at age, you know, in 1975. Um, and then came back and played in women's tennis. Mm -hmm. And um, she also says that it's not it's not fair for transgender well, women you, to be you, competing you, against you, women but you, Charles, at an elite level. You can get an opinion on either side of this conversation. Uh, the women athletes okay, who well, say they're very comfortable with trans women. Forget about the opinion. Well, then you, let's you, look at, you raise let's them. Let's look at the science. Okay. Science. Which is which is also okay. very un unsettled. The science is very unsettled. Go ahead. And the science is, is, is for the most part not unsettled. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that's not what I'm hearing. But go ahead. That's not what you're hearing. No. But okay. So, in in fact, the majority of science believes that even with the um, like, for instance, the uh, the International Olympic Committee requiring that. Women who have transitioned, you know, the men who have transitioned to, to, to women um, have to do androgen suppression for a year before they start competing. There was a very large review coming out of Sweden, out of the Karolinska Institute. This is not a place that's going to be antithetical to this sort of, you know, uh, sexual transition. Um, it, it turns out that the reduction in muscle mass is less than five percent so what by doing that the the the, the, so, the, the, the hormone treatment will not reduce your muscle mass by that much is what you're not saying not significantly enough that's yeah. correct I, I, and and yeah. that is because if you trans if you transition after puberty most of the muscle development remains even with androgen suppression and that this is not based on one study this is based on a multitude of studies that are aggregated mm -hmm. so my point is that there needs to be some solution sought here. Calling everyone transphobic just because they don't agree with your point of view. Because the argument some of the people who are making from the, you know, the, the, the side that says that you know, transgender women should be able to compete against women says that, well, gender, if they see their gender as female, therefore they should be able to compete as a, compete as a female. Well, unfortunately... In, in this setting, at least, we're not talking about uniquely this every setting, but in this setting, certain there are certain advantages to have certain types of muscle development in certain sports, and you can try to make that go away, but in your mind as your gender. But this isn't the question. The question is: Is there a physiologic advantage to having transitioned at a certain point in your life? And we know that most people who are transitioning are not going to transition at the beginning of puberty. They're going to do the same thing Leah Thomas did, which is transition toward the end of puberty, when a lot of that development has already occurred. So, you know, my question is, this is getting us nowhere, right? I mean, well, what do you, what do you mean getting us nowhere? I mean, if you're if you are a transgender woman and you want to compete in sports, it's an important question for you. No, but it's getting us nowhere in terms of looking for a solution. 
Uh, well, the solution we, is to rail and, and you know against everybody who disagrees with you, mm-hmm. nor is the solution to ban everybody from doing this. Okay, so that's that's the solution in states like Iowa, ban any woman or girl from participating in high school or college sports. Um, well, that's been their solution. That's been the state solution. But right, but what? It, what? It, it's, it's not a solution. It's not even a solution. It's a political position, just to make a point. So the question is, are there ways to deal with this? Okay. Acknowledge that there are certain physiologic advantages that are retained and find a way to make this work. You know, I mean, obviously, this is much more of an issue at the level of elite sports because that's, there's a lot of money at stake here right? and world records. But the yeah, other question glory. is, why does it really matter at some point in terms of high school sports? I mean, it's high school sports. Well, you because know, it's, yeah, well, I mean, when you're, okay, so somebody who was in high school and hated nearly every minute of it, the only thing I really liked about high school was being able to leave, you know, as soon as the bell rang at 2.05, I was out the door, I was into my running outfit, I was high jumping, I was, I was, I was running around the track, or I was going off for long runs, that was the only thing I liked about high school, so for me, you know, yeah, sports was a big deal in high school, it was what kept me in high school. Okay, and so, having said that... Do you truly feel that for all the non-transition women who are competing, that if they're presented with somebody who has transitioned, and first of all, how many high school athletes are there going to be? Because, again, most people transitioning are going to occur at, in, in late puberty, if not later. So what's the number of people who we're even talking about? Yeah, I, I you know, again, I'm, I'm I, I don't think I don't think it's that many. I haven't I, I've actually dug around a little bit for that information. Haven't found anything. It may be that we just don't know the answer to that question, which is why it's so hard to find. Yeah, but I, well, I, it gets back to the same question, which is I don't see again just banning it because it's it's good for the base versus calling everybody who disagrees with you transphobic. Yeah. Um, is, is, is solving the problem. So, yeah, I mean, what would you see as a fair or an attempt to make this fair? I don't know. That's why, that's why I, think, I, think, I think additional conversation, scientific research, um, you know, I, th- I think, you know, additional, you know, more people, more trans women participating in sports. I, th- I think it's good to see that happen and, and to see uh, if over time we can come to some kind of agreement. Of course, coming to an agreement is probably unlikely because you've got the, the extreme on one side who are going to, you know, push the trans transphobic argument and the extreme on the other side, which is even worse, in my opinion, the, you know, like the governor of Iowa and others who make this a huge campaign issue to distract people from the real stuff that's um, that's affecting most people's lives. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I understand that, but I'm, I, this is, see, this is, this has not been part of the conversation. It's all been about this. It's all been about, you know, these sort of work, these, these not useful positions. You know, I mean, why not, you know, do something akin to, to golf. Golf? You know, basically create a handicap. Let, you know, th- there is some advantage, I would think, to cis women competing against a, 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 a transgender woman because that is actually, especially in a sport like swimming, you're going to be pulled along by the increased, you know, pace of that person. To a point. But, you know, um, why not where it's mandated. I don't think it's mandated, you know, where it makes sense. It doesn't make sense to do this at the high school level. But maybe at the level of college, to, to allow fair competition, that, you know, you, you do somehow formulate a handicap kind of system for transition women. I mean, I, I, I'm sure that that will be seen as transphobic once again. But, I mean, it's just it's ridiculous not to acknowledge that there, there, there are anatomical slash physiologic consequences to having at one time been a male. Mm. And that it's real nice to talk about, well, it's about gender, not about, you know, not about phenotype. But that's, that's a ludicrous statement when you're talking about athletics. Yeah. Well, you know, so, to, to me it isn't really about... At some point the conversation, if we're really serious about trying to find a solution, the conversation... You know, it has to be about, you know, 
you know, whether it, it isn't about whether trans women have advantages or not. It's how do we create an environment, a scenario where trans women and cis women can compete against one another meaningfully, you know, without, you know, and, and maybe there's some cases where that doesn't happen, but, uh, yeah. But what, I, does that, what does that mean, meaningfully? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, I, you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, fairly, let's, let's call it fairness. I don't know. Well, um, I mean, I think that should be the goal. Yeah. Well, you know, but... Um, but I, I, well, I'm sure of one thing. There, there are forces on both sides of the political spectrum, and especially on the right, that are going to keep this a, a divisive, uh, unresolvable issue for as long as possible to make as much political hay on it as possible. Agreed? Yes. Okay. And, and, I knew and, agree. And Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And, and, and the, the response of the left to label everybody who disagrees with them either a racist or a genderist or a, a transphobic and everything else does nothing to address the problems you want to address. And all it does is validate the people on the right that they're correct. Right. Yeah. Well, I do notice it's one of our Governor Kim Reynolds' uh, priorities in this upcoming election, which uh, is really, really pathetic. <laughs> so many real... I mean, it, Unbelievable. I mean, there is no interest in governing anymore. Yeah. Well, all people want to do is make political points. Well, I mean, some have got that very good. Really, a priority in this state compared to the poison water? Yeah. You know, compared to the you know increasingly poison environment in general. Yeah. You know, in terms to in terms of the education system as it's you know slowly deteriorating. And that's why I we mean, and that's why we won't talk about this very often on this program. Uh, <laughs> uh, Charles, well, I got. No, I, I agree. I, I, I agree, but I think that this 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 is a paradigm. Yeah. For how we deal with so many issues. Yep. So that, true. You know, obviously affect more people than this, but this is an issue yeah. worth. Yeah. Resolving. Yep. Hey, I got to run to a break, Charles. We'll resolve it some other day. Um, <laughs> uh, thanks for joining me today. Charles Goldman, folks, uh, good to have him on the show as always. When we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns will join me for our farm and food segment. We're going to be talking about yams versus sweet potatoes. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of architecture by synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, you can also become a sponsor of this program. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. Well, I'd like to welcome Kathy Burns to the program. Kathy. Good to have you join us, and I believe we're going to be talking about roots today. I, I, I can't. I can barely contain my excitement. <laughs> well, a certain kind of roots, okay. roots that you eat. Okay, the good, root good kind. crops, right? Root crops. Uh, so you know, we we talk a lot about the soil and how important it is to have good soil to make good soil if you don't already have it. And root crops are cool because they don't grow on top of the soil. The food part grows in or under the soil. Right, so, where moles can eat it. Neat. 
Yeah, but what? <laughs> well, there's a whole other issue. But what fascinates me is the variety of types of root crops. For instance, just some of them are uh, tap roots, bulbs, tubers, tuberous roots, corms, rhizomes, and there are more. And mm. uh, we're just going to talk a little bit about some of the confusion around some certain types of root crops. Well, I know one one uh, one running item of confusion is yams and sweet potatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they, they my, my, my impression is most people believe those terms are interchangeable. You got a yam, you got a sweet potato, same thing. You know who else thinks that? Who? People who manage stores and produce mm. sections. They'll have um, a whole bin of them out Getting closer to you know the the fall and when everybody's into you know whatever in, holidays they want to do in the fall, but they'll they'll say yams and these are really sweet potatoes. But yet they error. They error. <laughs> they error because, uh, well, so potatoes and sweet potatoes and yams um, they're not even related. In right. fact, potatoes and yams are more related than they are to each other than they are to sweet potatoes. So that's so what, why, why the confusion about yams and sweet potatoes? Why do people think that the same thing, people including store, you know, uh, gro- grocery. grocery, grocery managers? Because what, they're different because, well, first of all, the sweet potatoes and yams are not even related <laughs> foods. Uh, one is a tuber and one is a tuberous root. And here's the difference. A tuber is... When the uh, the the food grows on the root, so a potato. I think most people are familiar with how potatoes grow. You plant that part of a potato, and it sends out roots down into the soil, and little potatoes form on the roots. That's a tuber. Yeah. But a tuberous root means that, and this is very nicely grammatical. It is a root that is tuberous. So <laughs> the the food is the root itself. It doesn't send out roots and then form the food. The food is the root. So, so a yam is one thing and a sweet potato is another? Right. So okay, the, which is which? <laughs> um, the yams are the tubers. They're more like potatoes. They they get planted and they send out roots and the sweet potato or the yams grow onto the roots themselves. So a yam is not as common in the U.S. as the sweet potato. In fact, it originated in Africa, and it's uh, it's in the same family as a lily. So yams have the brown or the black scaly skins. Their flesh is usually off-white, purple, or red, and they have a rounded end like a potato. They're shaped more like a big potato. In fact, they can grow very, very, very big, much bigger than potatoes. But a sweet potato, being the root itself, right. that is a tuber, um, is it originated in Central and South America. Technically, they're not tubers because um, sweet potatoes are in the morning glory family. But that's that's the one that you mostly see in the stores. You don't it see many. You, you don't you hardly ever see a yam, really. It, right. A true yam. Right. And the yam has the tapered end. Right. So as a root go- comes right down from the top of the plant, then it goes, it points down at the end, and yeah. it might send out a tiny, few tiny little yeah, roots Yeah, and a sweet potato looks more like a, a, a rat. A rat? Yeah. I mean, a tasty rat, you know, <laughs> but, but it has that long little tail thing, but it doesn't really have a, it really it doesn't really taper. That's well, true. Depends but, on the type of, I know you get Georgia Jets and Beauregards and Vanguards and whatnot, but. Well, here's the, here's the ironic thing. Between a yam and a sweet potato, which one sounds like it'd be the sweet one? Well, the sweet potato, of wrong. course. Wrong. The yam is the sweeter of wow. the two. It is so we're, also... just, we're just wrong on all accounts here. <laughs> so how do we get to be so wrong? Why are we calling yams and sweet potatoes the same thing? Because when, well, and it has to do with America's uh, terrible history of, <laughs> of slavery. Oh. Uh, when, when people from Africa were brought to the U.S. to do all the work that the founding people and the settlers didn't want to do, I guess. They wanted free labor. They brought people over, and uh, when when those slaves were introduced to the food that was already being grown in the U.S., the sweet potato, it was similar to the food they were accustomed to in Africa, the yam. Um, hmm. They both can have an orangey flesh or different colored flesh, and they both can be cooked um, in some similar ways, but not exactly. Um, so that's why there is confusion. Um, but 
but you know they're okay. both they're both very good. It would seem like that would be a piece of confusion that's easily fixed. Well, people are lazy. <laughs> people don't want to know the difference. I read a story about uh, a, a professor from Africa was coming to the U.S. and and his he was so excited because it was near Thanksgiving and some people he was staying with were going to be celebrating Thanksgiving and he said he had had yams in every way in his home country. He had had them boiled and roasted and. And, uh, you know, just any way that, that he could enjoy yams. But he had never had mm. candied yams, which mm. is highly touted yeah, in the and U.S. An diet. abomination, if you ask me. And guess what? <laughs> what they served him was candied sweet potatoes. Candied so sweet potatoes, okay. I think he threw a fit and upset the yeah. table and right. stormed out. Well, I know, I know how to eat a sweet potato, but I've never really, I don't think I've ever had or really know much about preparing a yam. Well, we're growing sweet potatoes, but we'll have to get some yams and sweet potatoes and do a side-by-side. Right, huh. Well, Kathy, thanks so much for joining us, uh, folks, talking to Kathy Burns about, well, root crops, specifically yams and sweet potatoes. Hey, thanks to my guest today, uh, Bill McKibben, and to our production team of Sherry Hardina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio, and I'm going to leave you with this little uh, musical thought somewhat relevant to our program today. I got a sweet potato. It is steaming hot. Before I give it away, I'm going to let it rot. I got sweet potatoes, I ain't going to give you none. Old Aunt Jane got a sweet potato in her hand. If you want good potatoes, bake it in my pan. I got sweet potatoes, and I ain't going to give you none.